CD6 It's from the Dungeon Dimensions, said the Dean. Cream the basket! The Arch-Chancellor laid a steadying hand on his shoulder. Don't be daft. Dungeon things have a lot more tentacles than things. They don't look... made. They turned at the sound of another trolley. It rattled unconcernedly down a side passage, stopped when it saw or otherwise perceived the wizards, and did a creditable impression of a trolley that had just been left there by someone. The bursar crept up to it. It's no use you looking like that, he said. We know you can move. We all see you, said the dean. The trolley maintained a low profile. It can't be thinking, said the lecturer in recent rooms. There's no room for a brain. Who says it's thinking, said the arch-chancellor. All it does is move. Who needs brains for that? Prawns move. He ran his fingers over the metalwork. Actually, prawns are quite intelligent, the senior wrangler began. Shut up, said Ridcully. Hmm, is this made, though? It's wire, said the senior wrangler. Wire's something that you have to make. And there's wheels. Hardly anything natural's got wheels. It's just that close up, it, 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 it looks... All one thing, said the lecturer in recent runes, who had knelt down painfully to inspect it the better. Like one unit, made all in one lump, like a machine that's been grown. But that's ridiculous. Maybe. Isn't there a sort of cuckoo in the ram tops that builds clocks to nesting, said the bursar. Yes, but uh, that's just a courtship ritual, said the lecturer in recent runes airily. Besides, they keep lousy time. The trolley leapt for a gap in the wizards, and would have made it except that the gap was occupied by the bursar, who gave a scream and pitched forward into the basket. The trolley didn't stop, but rattled onwards towards the gates. The dean raised his staff. The arch-chancellor grabbed it. You might hit the bursar, he said. Just one small fireball? It's tempting, but no, come on, after it. Yo! If you like. The wizards lumbered in pursuit. Behind them, as yet unnoticed, a whole flock of the Arch-Chancellor's swear words fluttered and buzzed, and Windle Poons was leading a small deputation to the library. The librarian of the Unseen University knuckled his way hurriedly across the floor as the door shook to a thunderous knocking. "'I know you're in there,' came the voice of Windle Poons. "'You must let us in. It's vitally important.' "'Ooh!' "'You won't open the doors?' Ooh, then you leave me no choice. Ancient blocks of masonry moved aside slowly. Mortar crumbled. Then part of the wall fell in, leaving Windlepoons standing in a Windlepoons-shaped hole. He coughed on the dust. I hate having to do that, he said. I can't help feeling it's pandering to popular prejudice. The librarian landed on his shoulders. To the orangutan's surprise, this made very little difference. A 300-pound orangutan usually had a noticeable effect on the person's rate of progress, but Windle wore him like a collar. "'I think we need ancient history,' he said. "'I wonder, could you stop trying to twist my head off?' The librarian looked around wildly. It was a technique that normally never failed. Then his nostrils flared. The librarian hadn't always been an ape. A magical library is a dangerous place to work, and he'd been turned into an orangutan as a result of a magical explosion. He'd been a quite inoffensive human, although by now so many people had come to terms with his new shape that few people remembered it. But with the change had come the key to a whole bundle of senses and racial memories, and one of the deepest, most fundamental, most born in the bone of all of them was to do with shapes. It went back to the dawn of sapience. Shapes with muzzles, teeth and forelegs were, in the evolving simian mind, definitely filed under bad news. A very large wolf had padded through the hole in the wall, followed by an attractive young woman. The librarian's signal input was temporarily fused. Also, said Windle, it is just possible that I could knot your arms behind you. Ooh! He's not an ordinary wolf, you'd better believe it. Ooh! Windle lowered his voice. And she might not technically be a woman, he added.
The librarian looked at Ludmilla. His nostrils flared again. His brow wrinkled. Ooh? All right, I may have put that rather clumsily. Do let go, there's a good fellow. The librarian released his grip very cautiously and sank to the floor, keeping Windle between himself and Lupine. Windle brushed mortar fragments off the remains of his robe. We need to find out, he said, about the lives of cities. Specifically, I need to know... There was a faint jangling noise. A wire basket rolled nonchalantly around the massive stack of the nearest bookcase. It was full of books. It stopped as soon as it realised that it had been seen and contrived to look as though it had never moved at all. The mobile stage, breathed Wendell Poons. The wire basket tried to inch backwards without appearing to move. Lupine growled. Is that what one man bucket was talking about? said Ludmilla. The trolley vanished. The librarian grunted and went after it. Oh, yes, something that would make itself useful, said Windle, suddenly almost manically cheerful. That's how it'd work. First, something that you'd want to keep and put away somewhere. Thousands wouldn't get the right conditions, but that wouldn't matter because there would be thousands. And then the next stage would be something that would be handy and get everywhere, and no one would ever think it had got there by itself. But it's all happening at the wrong time. But how can a city be alive? It's only made up of dead parts, said Ludmilla. So are people. Take it from me. I know. But you are right, I think. This shouldn't be happening. It's all this extra life force. It's, it, it's tipping the balance. It's turning something that isn't really real into a reality. And it's happening too early. And it's happening too fast. There was a squeal from the librarian. The trolley erupted from another row of shelves, wheels a blur, heading for the hole in the wall, with the orangutan hanging on grimly with one hand and flapping behind it like a very fat flag. The wolf leapt. Lupine! shouted Windle. But from the days when the first caveman rolled a slice of log down a hill, canines have also had a deep racial urge to chase anything on wheels. Lupine was already snapping at the trolley. His jaws met on a wheel. There was a howl, a scream from the librarian, and ape, wolf, and wire basket ended up in a heap against the wall. Oh, the poor thing! Look at him! Ludmilla rushed across the floor and knelt down by the stricken wolf. It went right over his paws. Look! And he's probably lost a couple of teeth, said Windle. He helped the librarian up. There was a red glow in the ape's eyes. It had tried to steal his books. This was probably the best proof any wizard could require that the trolleys were brainless. He reached down and wrenched the wheels off the trolley. Olay, said Windle. Oh? No, not with milk, said Windle. Lupine was having his head cradled in Ludmilla's lap. He had lost a tooth and his fur was a mess. He opened one eye and fixed Windle with a conspiratorial yellow stare while his ears were stroked. There's a lucky dog, thought Windle. Who's going to push his luck and hold up a paw and whine? Right, said Windle. Now, librarian, you were about to help us, I think. Poor, brave dog, said Ludmilla. Lupine raised a paw pathetically and whined. Burdened by the screaming form of the bursa, the other wire basket couldn't get up to the speed of its departed comrade. One wheel also trailed uselessly. It canted recklessly from side to side and nearly fell over as it shot through the gates, moving sideways. I can see it clear! I can see it clear! screamed the dean. Don't! You might hit the bursa! bellowed Ridcully. You might damage university property! But the dean couldn't hear for the roar of unaccustomed testosterone. A searing green fireball struck the skewing trolley. The air was filled with flying wheels. Ridcully took a deep breath. You stupid! he screamed. The word he uttered was unfamiliar to those wizards who had not had his robust country upbringing and knew nothing of the finer points of animal husbandry, but it plopped into existence a few inches from his face. It was fat, round, black and glossy, with horrible eyebrows. It blew him an insectile raspberry and flew up to join the little swarm of curses. What the hell was that? A smaller thing flashed into existence by his ear. Ridcully snatched at his hat. Damn! The swarm increased by one. Something just bit me. 
A squadron of newly hatched blastards made a valiant bid for freedom. He swatted at them ineffectually. Get away, you b he began. Don't say it, said the senior wrangler. Shut up. People never told the Arch-Chancellor to shut up. Shutting up was something that happened to other people. He shut up, out of shock. I mean, every time you swear it comes alive, said the senior wrangler hurriedly. Ghastly little winged things pop out of the air. Bloody hellfire, said the Arch-Chancellor. Pop, pop. The bursar crawled, dazed out of the tangled wreckage of the wire trolley. He found his pointy hat, dusted it off, tried it on, frowned, and took a wheel out of it. His colleagues didn't seem to be paying him much attention. He heard the Arch-Chancellor say, But I've always done it. Nothing wrong with a good swear. It, it, it keeps the blood flowing. Watch out, Dean. One of the buggers... Can't you say something else? shouted the senior wrangler above the buzz and whine of the swarm. Like what? Like, oh, like, darn. Darn? Yes, or, or maybe poot. Poot? You want me to say poot? The bursar crept up to the group. Arguing over petty details at times of dimensional emergency was a familiar, wizardly trait. Mrs Whitlow, the housekeeper, always says sugar when she drops something, he volunteered. The Arch-Chancellor turned on him. She may say sugar, he growled, but what she means is shit. The wizards ducked. Ridcully managed to stop himself. Oh, oh, darn, he said miserably. The swear words settled amiably on his hat. They like you said the dean. You're the daddy, said the lecturer in recent runes. Rid Cully scowled. You boys can stop being silly at your arch-chancellor's expense and uh, jolly well find out what's going on, he said. The wizards looked expectantly at the air. Nothing appeared. You're doing fine, said the lecturer in recent runes. Keep it up. Darn, 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 said the Arch-Chancellor. Sugar, sugar, sugar. Pooty, pootity, poot, he shook his head. It's no good, it doesn't relieve my feelings one bit. It's clear the air at any rate, said the bursar. They noticed his presence for the first time. They looked at the remains of the trolley. Things zooming around, said Ridcully. Things coming alive. They looked up at a suddenly familiar squeaking noise. Two more wheeled baskets rattled across the square outside the gates. One was full of fruit, the other was half full of fruit and half full of small screaming child. The wizards watched open-mouthed. A stream of people were galloping after the trolleys. Slightly in the lead, elbows scything through the air, a desperate and determined woman pounded past the university gates. The Arch-Chancellor grabbed a heavy-set man who was lumbering along gamely at the back of the crowd. What happened? I was just loading some peaches into that basket thing when it upped and ran away on me. What about the child? Search me. This woman had one of the baskets and she bought some peaches off me and, and then... They all turned. A basket rattled out of the mouth of an alleyway, saw them, turned smartly and shot off across the square. But why? said Ridcully. They're so handy to put things in, right? said the man. I've got to get them peaches. You know how they bruise. And they're all going in the same direction, said the lecturer in recent runes. Anyone else notice that? After them, screamed the dean. The other wizards, too bewildered to argue, lumbered after him. No, Ridcully began, and realised that it was hopeless, and he was losing the initiative. He carefully formulated the most genteel battle cry in the history of Bodlerism. Darn them to heck, he yelled, and ran after the dean. Bill Dor worked through the long, heavy afternoon at the head of a trail of binders and stackers, until there was a shout and the men ran towards the hedge. Iago Peedbury's big field was right on the other side. His farm hands were wheeling the combination harvester through the gate. Bill joined the others leaning over the hedge. The distant figure of Simnel could be seen giving instructions. A frightened horse was backed into the shafts. The blacksmith climbed up into the little metal seat in the middle of the machinery and took up the reins. The horse walked forward, 
The sparge arms unfolded, the canvas sheets started to revolve, and probably the riffling screw was turning, but that didn't matter because something somewhere went clonk, and everything stopped. From the crowd at the hedge, there were shouts of, Get out and milk it! We had one, but the end fell off. Tuppence more and up goes the donkey! Another time-honoured witticisms. Simnel got down, held a whispered conversation with Peadbury and his men, and then disappeared into the machinery for a moment. It'll never fly. Veal will be cheap tomorrow. This time the combination harvester got several feet before one of the rotating sheets split and folded up. By now some of the older men at the hedge were doubled up with laughter. Any old iron sixpence a load. That's the other one. This one's broke. Simnel got down again. Distant catcalls drifted towards him as he untied the sheet and replaced it with a new one. He ignored them. Without moving his gaze from the scene in the opposite field, Bill Dorr pulled a sharpening stone out of his pocket and began to hone his scythe slowly and deliberately. Apart from the distant clink of the blacksmith's tools, the ship-ship of stone on metal was the only sound in the heavy air. Simnel climbed back into the harvester and nodded to the man leading the horse. "'Here we go again. Any more for the skylark? Put a sock in it.' The cries trailed off. Half a dozen pairs of eyes followed the combination harvester up the field, stared while it was turned around on the headland, watched it come back again. It clicked past, reciprocating and oscillating. At the bottom of the field, it turned around neatly. It whirred by again. After a while, one of the watchers said gloomily, "'It'll never catch on. You mark my words.' "'Right enough. Who's going to want a gadget like that?' said another. Sure, and it's only like a big clock. Can't do anything more than go up and down a field. Very fast. Cutting the corn like that and stripping the grain off. It's done three rows already. Bugger me. You can't hardly see the bits move. What do you think of that, Bill? Bill? They looked around. He was halfway up his second row, but accelerating. Miss Flitworth opened the door a fraction. Yes, she said suspiciously. It's Bill Dorr, Miss Flitworth. We brought him home. She opened the door wider. What happened to him? The two men shuffled in awkwardly, trying to support a figure a foot taller than they were. It raised its head and squinted muzzily at Miss Flitworth. Don't know what came over him, said Duke Bottomley. He's a devil for working, said William Spigot. You're getting your money's worth out of him all right, Miss Flitworth. It'll be the first time, then, in these parts, she said sourly. Up and down the field like a madman, trying to be better than that contraption of Ned Simnel's. Took four of us to do the point, and he nearly beat it, too. Put him down on the sofa. We told him he was doing too much in all that, son. Duke craned his neck to see around the kitchen, just in case jewels and treasure were hanging out of the dresser drawers. Miss Flitworth eclipsed his view. I'm sure you did, thank you. Now I expect you'll be wanting to be off home. If there's anything we can do... I know where you live. And you ain't paid no rent there for five years. Too goodbye, Mr Spigot. She ushered them to the door and shut it in their faces. Then she turned around. What the hell have you been doing, Mr. So-called Bill Doer? I am tired, and it won't stop. Bill Doer clutched at his skull. Also, Spigot gave me a humorous apple juice fermented drink because of the heat, and now I feel ill. I ain't surprised he makes it up in the woods. Apples isn't the half of it. I have never felt ill before, or tired. It's all part of being alive. How do humans stand it? Well, fermented apple juice can help. Bill Dorr sat staring gloomily at the floor. But we finished the field, he said with a hint of triumph. All stacked in stooks. Or possibly the other way round. He clutched at his skull again. Ugh. Miss Flitworth disappeared into the scullery. There was the creaking of a pump. She returned with a damp flannel and a glass of water. There's a newt in it. Shows it's fresh, said Miss Flitworth, fishing the amphibian out and releasing it on the flagstones where it scuttled away into a crack. 
People have believed for hundreds of years that newts in a well mean that the water's fresh and drinkable, and in all that time never asked themselves whether the newts got out to go to the lavatory. Bildor tried to stand up. Now I almost know why some people wish to die, he said. I had heard of pain and misery, but I had not hitherto fully understood what they meant. Miss Flitworth peered through the dusty window. The clouds that had been piling up all afternoon towered over the hills, grey with a menacing hint of yellow. The heat pressed down like a vice. There's a big storm coming. Will it spoil my harvest? No, it'll dry out after. How is the child? Bildor unfolded his palm. Miss Flitworth raised her eyebrows. The golden glass was there, the top bulb almost empty, but it shimmered in and out of vision. How come you've got it? It's upstairs she was holding it like, she floundered. Like someone holds something very tightly. She still is. But it is also here. Or anywhere. It is only a metaphor, after all. What she's holding looks real enough. Just because something is a metaphor doesn't mean it can't be real. Miss Flitworth was aware of a faint echo in the voice, as though the words were being spoken by two people almost, but not quite in sync. How long have you got? A matter of hours. And the scythe? I gave the blacksmith strict instructions. She frowned. I'm not saying young Simnel's a bad lad, but uh, are you sure he'll do it? It's asking a lot of a man like him to destroy something like that. I had no choice. The little furnace here isn't good enough. It's a wicked sharp scythe. I fear it may not be sharp enough. And no one has ever tried this on you. There is a saying, you can't take it with you. Yes. How many people have seriously believed it? I remember reading once, said Miss Flitworth, about these heathen kings in the desert somewhere who build huge pyramids and put all sorts of stuff in them. Even boats. Even girls in transparent trousers and a couple of saucepan lids. You can't tell me that's right. I've never been very sure about what is right, said Bildor. I am not sure there is such a thing as right or wrong. Just places to stand. No, right's right and wrong's wrong, said Miss Flitworth. I was brought up to tell the difference. By a contrabandist or... A what? A mover of contraband. There's nothing wrong with smuggling. I merely point out that some people think otherwise. They don't count. But lightning struck, somewhere on the hill. The thunderclap rocked the house. A few bricks from the chimney rattled into the grate. Then the windows shook to a fierce pounding. Bill Dorr strode across the room and threw open the door. Hailstones the size of hen's eggs bounced off the doorstep and into the kitchen. Oh, drama. Oh, hell. Miss Flitworth ducked under his arm. And where's the wind come from? The sky, said Bill Dorr, surprised at the sudden excitement. Come on. She whirled back into the kitchen and scrabbled on the dresser for a candle lantern and some matches. But you said it would dry. In a normal storm, yes. In this lot, it's going to be ruined. We'll find spread all over the hill in the morning. She fumbled the candle alight and ran back again. Bill Dorr looked out into the storm. Straws whirred past, tumbling on the gale. Ruined? My harvest? He straightened up. Bugger that! The hail rumbled on the roof of the smithy. Ned Simnel pumped the furnace bellows until the heat of the coals was white with the merest hint of yellow. It had been a good day. The combination harvester had worked better than he dared to hope. Old Peadbury had insisted on keeping it to do another field tomorrow, so it had been left out with a tarpaulin over it, securely tied down. Tomorrow he could teach some of the men to use it and start work on a new, improved model. Success was assured. The future definitely lay ahead. Then there was the matter of the scythe, he went to the wall where it had been hung. Bit of a mystery, that. Here was the most superb instrument of its kind he'd ever seen. You couldn't even blunt it. Its sharpness extended well beyond its actual edge, and yet he was supposed to destroy it. Where was the sense in that? Ned Simnel was a great believer in sense, of a certain specialised kind. Maybe Bill Dorr just wanted to be rid of it, and that was understandable, because even now when it hung innocuously enough from the wall it seemed to radiate sharpness. 
There was a faint violet corona around the blade, caused by the draughts in the room driving luckless air molecules to their severed death. Ned Simnel picked it up with great care. Weird fellow, Bill Dorr. He'd said he wanted to be sure it was absolutely dead. As if you could kill a thing. Anyway, how could anyone destroy it? Oh, the handle would burn and the metal would calcine, and if he worked hard enough, eventually there'd be nothing more than a little heap of dust and ashes. That was what the customer wanted. On the other hand, presumably, you could destroy it by just taking the blade off the handle. After all, it wouldn't be a scythe if you did that. It'd just be, well, bits. Certainly you could make a scythe out of them, but you could probably do that with the dust and ashes if you knew how to do it. Ned Simnel was quite pleased with this line of argument, and after all, Bill Dorr hadn't even asked for proof that the thing had been uh, killed. He took sight carefully and then used the scythe to chop the end off the anvil. Uncanny. Total sharpness. He gave in. It was unfair. You couldn't ask someone like him to destroy something like this. It was a work of art. It was better than that. It was a work of craft. He walked across the room to a stack of timber and thrust the scythe well out of the way behind the heap. There was a brief punctured squeak. Anyway, it would be all right. He'd give Bill his farthing back in the morning. The death of rats materialised behind the heap in the forge and trudged to the sad little heap of fur that had been a rat that got in the way of the scythe. Its ghost was standing beside it, looking apprehensive. It didn't seem very pleased to see him. Squeak, squeak. Squeak, the death of rats explained. Squeak. Squeak, the death of rats confirmed. Preen whiskers, twitch nose. The death of rats shook its head. Squeak. The rat was crestfallen. The death of rats laid a bony but not entirely unkind paw on its shoulder. Squeak. The rat nodded sadly. It had been a good life in the forge. Ned's housekeeping was almost non-existent, and he was probably the world champion absent-minded lever of unfinished sandwiches. It shrugged and trooped after the small robed figure. It wasn't as if it had any choice. People were streaming through the streets. Most of them were chasing trolleys. Most of the trolleys were full of whatever people had found a trolley useful to carry, firewood, children, shopping, and they were no longer dodging but moving blindly all in the same direction. You could stop a trolley by turning it over when its wheels spun madly and uselessly. The wizards saw a number of enthusiastic individuals trying to smash them, but the trolleys were practically indestructible. They bent but didn't break, and if they had even one wheel left, they'd make a valiant attempt to keep going. Look at that one, said the Arch-Chancellor. It's got my laundry in it, my actual laundry. Darn that for a lark. He pushed his way through the crowds and rammed his staff into the trolley's wheels, toppling it over. We can't get a clear shot at anything with all these civilians around, complained the Dean. There's hundreds of trolleys, said the lecturer in recent rooms. It's just like vermin. Get away from me, you, you, you basket. Vermin are small black-and-white rodents found in the Ramtop Mountains. They are ancestors of the lemming, which, as is well known, throws itself over cliffs and drowns in lakes on a regular basis. Vermin used to do that too. The point is, though, that dead animals don't breed, and over the millennia more and more vermin were descendants of those vermin who, when faced with a cliff edge, squeaked the rodent equivalent of blow that for a game of soldiers. Vermin now abseil down cliffs and build small boats to cross lakes. When their rush leads them to the seashore, they sit around avoiding one another's gaze for a while and then leave early to get home before the rush. He flailed at an importunate trolley with his staff. The tide of wheeled baskets was flowing out of the city. The struggling humans gradually dropped out or fell under the wobbling wheels. Only the wizards stayed in the flowing tide, shouting at one another and attacking the silvery swarm with their staves. It wasn't that magic didn't work. It worked quite well. A good zap could turn a trolley into a thousand little intricate wire puzzles. But what good did that do? A moment later, two others would trundle over their stricken sibling. Around the Dean, trolleys were being splashed into metal droplets. He's really getting the hang of it, isn't he? said the senior wrangler, as he and the bursar levered yet another basket onto its back. He's certainly saying yo a lot, said the bursar. The Dean himself didn't know when he'd been happier. 
For sixty years he'd been obeying all the self-regulating rules of wizardry, and suddenly he was having the time of his life. He'd never realised that deep down inside, what he really wanted to do was make things go splat. Fire leapt from the tip of his staff. Handles and bits of wire and pathetically spinning wheels tinkled down around him. And what made it even better was that there was no end to the targets. A second wave of trolleys crammed into a tighter space was trying to advance over the tops of those still in actual contact with the ground. It wasn't working, but they were trying anyway. And trying desperately, because a third wave was already crunching and smashing its way over the top of them. Except that you couldn't use the word trying. It suggested some sort of conscious effort some sort of possibility that there might also be a state of not trying. Something about the relentless movement, the way they crushed one another in their surge, suggested that the wire baskets had as much choice in the matter as water has about flowing downhill. Yo! shouted the dean. Raw magic smacked into the grinding tangle of metal. It rained wheels. Eat hot thaumaturgy, you... the dean began. Don't swear! Don't swear! shouted Ridcully above the noise. He tried to swat a silly bugger that was orbiting his hat. There's no telling what it might turn into. Bother! screamed the Dean. It's no good. We might as well be trying to hold back the sea, said the senior wrangler. I vote we head back to the university and pick up some really tough spells. Good idea, said Ridcully. He looked up at the advancing wall of twisted wire. Any idea how? he said. Yo, scallywags, said the dean. He aimed his staff again. It made a sad little noise that if it was written down could only be spelled puffed. A feeble spark fell off the end and onto the cobbles. Windle Poons slammed another book shut. The librarian winced. Nothing. Volcanoes, tidal waves, wrath of gods, meddling wizards... I don't want to know how other cities have been killed. I want to know how they ended. The librarian stacked another pile of books on the reading desk. Another plus about being dead, Windle was finding, was an ability with languages. He could see the sense in the words without knowing the actual meaning. Being dead wasn't like falling asleep after all. It was like waking up. He glanced across the library to where Lupine was having his paw bandaged. Librarian, he said softly. Ooh? You've changed species in your time. What would you do if, if for the sake of argument, you found a couple of people who... Uh, well, suppose there was a wolf that changed into a wolf-man at the full moon, and a woman that changed into a wolf-woman at the full moon. You know, approaching the same shape, but from opposite directions. And they'd met. What do you tell them? Do you let them sort it out for themselves? Ooh! said the librarian instantly. It's tempting. Ooh, ooh. Mrs. Cake wouldn't like it, though. Ooh, ooh. You're right. You could have put it a little less coarsely, but you're right. Everyone has to sort things out for themselves. He sighed and turned the page. His eyes widened. The city of Khan Lee, he said. Ever heard of it? What's this book? Strip Fettles, believe it or not, grimoire. Says here, little carts, none knew from where they came. Of such great use, men were employed to herd them and bring them into the city. Of a sudden, like unto a rush of creatures, men followed them, and behold, there was a new city outside the walls, a city as of merchants' booths wherein the carts ran. He turned the page. It seems to say... I still haven't understood it properly, he told himself. One man bucket thinks we're talking about the breeding of cities, but that doesn't feel right. A city is alive. Supposing you were a great slow giant, like a counting pine, and looked down at a city. You'd see buildings grow. You'd see attackers driven off. You'd see fires put out. You'd see the city was alive, but you wouldn't see people because they'd move too fast. The life of a city, the thing that drives it, isn't some sort of mysterious force. The life of a city is people. He turned the pages absently, not really looking. So we have the cities, big sedentary creatures, growing from one spot and hardly moving at all for thousands of years. They breed by sending out people to colonise new land. They themselves just lie there, 
They're alive, but only in the same way that a jellyfish is alive. Or a fairly bright vegetable. After all, we call Ankh-Morpork the Big Wahoonie. And where you get big, slow, living things, you get small, fast things that eat them. Windlepoons felt the brain cells firing. Connections were made. Thought gushed along new channels. Had he ever really thought properly when he was alive? He doubted it. He'd just been a lot of complicated reactions attached to a lot of nerve endings, with everything from idle rumination about the next meal to random distracting memories getting between him and real thought. It had grow inside the city, where it's warm and protected, and then it had break out, outside the city, and build something, not a real city, a false city, that puts the people, the life, out of the host. The word we're looking for here is predator. The dean stared at his staff in disbelief. He gave it a shake and aimed it again. This time, the sound would be spelt pfft. He looked up. A curling wave of trolleys, roof-top high, was poised to fall on him. Oh, sh shucks, he said, and folded his arms over his head. Someone grabbed the back of his robe and pulled him away as the trolleys crashed down. Come on, said Ridcully. If we run, we can keep ahead of them. I'm out of magic, I'm out of magic, moaned the dean. You'll be out of a lot more if you don't hurry, said the arch-chancellor. Trying to keep together, bumping into one another, the wizard staggered ahead of the trolleys. Streams of them were surging out of the city and across the fields. Know what this reminds me of, said Ridcully as they fought their way through. Do tell, muttered the senior wrangler. Salmon run, said the arch-chancellor. What? Not in the Ark, of course, said Ridcully. I don't reckon a salmon could get upstream in our river. Unless it walked, said the senior wrangler. But I've seen them thick as milk in some rivers, said Ridcully, fighting to get ahead, the whole river just a mass of silver. Fine, fine, said the senior wrangler. What do they do that for? Well, it's, it's all to do with breeding. Disgusting, and to think we have to drink water, said the senior wrangler. "'Right. We're in the open now. This is where we outflank them, said Ridcully. "'We'll just aim for a clear space and—' "'I don't think so,' said the lecturer in recent runes. "'Every direction was filled with an advancing, grinding, fighting wall of trolleys. "'They're coming to get us! They're coming to get us!' wailed the bursar. "'The dean snatched his staff. "'Hey, that's mine!' "'The dean pushed him away and blew off the wheels of a leading trolley. "'That's my staff!' The wizards stood back to back in a narrowing ring of metal. "'They're not right for this city,' said the lecturer in recent runes. "'I know what you mean,' said Ridcully. "'Alien!' "'I suppose no one's got a flying spell on them today?' the senior wrangler inquired. The dean took aim again and melted a basket. "'That's my staff you're using, you know!' "'Shut up, Bursar!' said the Arch-Chancellor. And, Dean, you're getting nowhere picking them off one by one like that. OK, lads, we want to do them all as much damage as possible. Remember, wild, uncontrolled bursts. The trolleys advanced. Ow! Ow! Miss Flitworth staggered through the wet, rattling gloom. Hailstones crunched underfoot. Thunder cannonaded around the sky. They sting, don't they? she said. They echo. Bildor fielded a stook as it was blown past, and stacked it with the others. Miss Flitworth scuttled past him, bent double under a load of corn. The ability of skinny old ladies to carry huge loads is phenomenal. Studies have shown that an ant can carry 100 times its own weight, but there is no known limit to the lifting power of the average tiny 80-year-old Spanish peasant grandmother. The two of them worked steadily, crisscrossing the field in the teeth of the storm, to snatch up the harvest before the wind and hail stole it away. Lightning flickered around the sky. It wasn't a normal storm. It was war. It's going to pour with rain in a minute, screamed Miss Flitworth above the noise. We'll never get it down to the barn. Go and fetch a tarpaulin or something. That'll do for tonight. Bildor nodded and ran through the squelching darkness towards the farm buildings. Lightning was striking so many times around the fields that the air itself was sizzling and a corona danced along the top of the hedge. And there was death. He saw it looming ahead of him, a crouched, skeletal shape, poised to spring, its robe flapping and rattling behind it in the wind. Tightness gripped him, trying to force him to run while at the same time rooting him to the spot. 
It invaded his mind and froze there, blocking all thought save for the innermost tiny voice which said quite calmly, So this is terror. Then death vanished as the lightning glow faded, reappeared as a fresh arc was struck on the next hill. Then the quiet internal voice added, But why doesn't it move? Bill Dorr let himself inch forward slightly. There was no response from the hunched thing. Then it dawned on him that the thing on the other side of the hedge was only a robed assemblage of rigs and femurs and vertebra, if viewed from one point of view, but if looked at slightly differently, was equally just a complexity of sparging arms and reciprocating levers that had been covered by a tarpaulin which was now blowing off. The combination harvester was in front of him. Bildor grinned horribly. Unbildor thoughts rose up in his mind. He stepped forward. The wall of trolleys surrounded the wizards. The last flare from a staff melted a hole which was instantly filled up by more trolleys. Ridcully turned to his fellow wizards. They were red in the face, their robes were torn, and several over-enthusiastic shots had resulted in singed beards and burnt hats. "'Hasn't anyone got any more spells on them?' he said. They thought feverishly. "'I think I can remember one,' said the bursar, hesitantly. "'Go on, man. Anything's worth trying at a time like this.' The bursar stretched out a hand. He shut his eyes. He muttered a few syllables under his breath. There was a brief flicker of octarine light, and... "'Oh,' said the Arch-Chancellor. "'And that's all of it?' "'Erinya's surprising bouquet,' said the bursar, bright-eyed and twitching. "'I don't know why, but it's one I've always been able to do. Just a knack, I suppose.' Ridcully eyed the huge bunch of flowers, now gripped in the bursar's fist. But, um, not, I venture to point out, entirely useful at this time, he added. The bursar looked at the approaching walls, and his smile faded. I suppose not, he said. Anyone else got any ideas? said Ridcully. There was no reply. Nice roses, though, said the dean. That was quick, said Miss Flitworth, when Bildor arrived at the pile of stooks dragging a tarpaulin behind him. Yes, wasn't it? he mumbled non-committally, as she helped him drag it over the stack and weigh it down with stones. The wind caught at it and tried to drag it out of his hands. It might as well have tried to blow a mountain over. Rain swept over the fields among shreds of mist that shimmered with blue electric energies. Never known a night like it, Miss Flitworth said. There was another crack of thunder. Sheet lightning fluttered around the horizon. Miss Flitworth clutched Bill Dorr's arm. Isn't that a figure on the hill? she said. Thought I saw a... a shape. No, it's merely a mechanical contrivance. There was another flash. On a horse? said Miss Flitworth. A third sheet seared across the sky, and this time there was no doubt about it. There was a mounted figure on the nearest hilltop, hooded, holding a scythe as proudly as a lance. Posing. Bildor turned towards Miss Flitworth. Posing. I never did anything like that. Why do anything like that? What purpose does it serve? He opened his palm. The gold timer appeared. How much longer have you got? Perhaps an hour. Perhaps minutes. Come on, then. Bill Dorr remained where he was, looking at the timer. I said, come on. It won't work. I was wrong to think it would. But it won't. There are some things that you cannot escape. You cannot live forever. Why not? Bildor looked shocked. What do you mean? Why can't you live forever? I don't know. Cosmic wisdom? What does cosmic wisdom know about it? Now will you come on? The figure on the hill hadn't moved. The rain had turned the dust into a fine mud. They slithered down the slope and hurried across the yard and into the house. I should have prepared more. I had plans. But there was the harvest. Yes. Is there any way we can barricade the doors or something? Do you know what you're saying? Well, think of something. Didn't anything ever work against you? No, said Bill Dorr with a tiny touch of pride. Miss Flitworth peered out of the window and then flung herself dramatically against the wall on the side of it. He's gone. It, said Bill Dorr, it won't be a he yet. It's gone. It could be anywhere. It can come through the wall. She darted forward and then glared at him. 
Very well. Fetch the child. I think we should leave here. A thought struck him. He brightened up a little bit. We do have some time. What is the hour? I don't know. You go around stopping the clocks the whole time. But it is not yet midnight. I should think it's more than a quarter past eleven. Then we have three quarters of an hour. How can you be sure? Because of drama, Miss Flitworth. The kind of death who poses against the skyline and gets lit up by lightning flashes, said Bill Dore disapprovingly, doesn't turn up at five and twenty past eleven if he can possibly turn up at midnight. She nodded, white-faced, and disappeared upstairs. After a minute or two, she returned, with Sal wrapped up in a blanket. Still fast asleep, she said. That's not sleep. The rain had stopped, but the storm still marched around the hills. The air sizzled, still seemed oven hot. Bill Dore led the way past the hen house, where Cyril and his elderly harem were crouched back in the darkness, all trying to occupy the same few inches of perch. There was a pale green glow hovering around the farmhouse chimney. "'We call that Mother Carey's fire,' said Miss Flitworth. "'It's an omen.' "'An omen of what?' "'What? Oh, don't ask me. Just an omen, I suppose. Just basic omenry. "'Where are we going?' "'Into the town.' "'To be near the scythe?' "'Yes.' He disappeared into the barn. After a while he came out leading Binky, saddled and harnessed. He mounted up, then leaned down and pulled both her and the sleeping child onto the horse in front of him. If I'm wrong, he added, this horse will take you wherever you want to go. I shan't want to go anywhere except back home. Wherever. Binky broke into a trot as they turned onto the road to the town. Wind blew the leaves off the trees which tumbled past them and on up the road. The occasional flash of lightning still hissed across the sky. Miss Flitworth looked at the hill beyond the farm. Bill. I know. It's there again. I know. Why isn't it chasing us? We're safe until the sand runs out. And you die when the sand runs out? No. When the sand runs out is when I should die. I will be in the space between life and afterlife. Bill. It looked as though the thing it was riding. I thought it was a proper horse, just very skinny, but... It's a skeletal steed. Impressive, but impractical. I had one once, but the head fell off. A bit like flogging a dead horse, I should think. Ha, ha. Most amusing, Miss Flitworth. I think that at a time like this you can stop calling me Miss Flitworth, said Miss Flitworth. Renata? She looked startled. How did you know my name? Oh, you've probably seen it written down, right? Engraved. On one of them hourglasses? Yes. With all them sands of time pouring through? Yes. Everyone's got one? Yes. So you know how long I've... Yes. It must be very odd knowing the kind of things you know. Do not ask me. That's not fair, you know. If we knew when we were going to die, people would live better lives. If people knew when they were going to die, I think they probably wouldn't live at all. Oh, very gnomic. And what do you know about it, Bill Dore? Everything. Binky trotted up one of the town's meagre handful of streets and over the cobbles of the square. There was no one else around. In cities like Ankh-Morpork, midnight was just late evening, because there was no civic night at all, just evenings fading into dawns. But here, people regulated their lives by things like sunsets and mispronounced cockcrows. Midnight meant what it said. Even with the storm stalking the hills, the square itself was hushed. The ticking of the clock in its tower, unnoticeable at midday, now seemed to echo off the buildings. As they approached, something whirred deep in its cogwheeled innards. The minute hand moved with a clonk and shuddered to a halt on the nine. A trapdoor opened in the clock face and two little mechanical figures whirred out self-importantly and tapped a small bell with great apparent effort. Ting, ting, ting. The figures lined up and wobbled back into the clock. They've been there ever since I was a girl. Mr. Simnel's great-great-granddad made them, said Miss Flitworth. I always wondered what they did between chimes, you know. I thought they had a little house in there or something. I don't think so. They're just a thing. They're not alive. Hmph. 
Well, they've been there for hundreds of years. Maybe life is something you sort of acquire. Yes. They waited in silence, except for the occasional thud as the minute hand climbed the night. It's, um, been quite nice having you around the place, Bill Dorr. He didn't reply. Helping me with the harvest and everything. It was interesting. It was wrong of me to delay you, just for a lot of corn. No, the harvest is important. Bildor unfolded his palm. The timer appeared. I still can't work out how you do that. It is not difficult. The hiss of the sand grew until it filled the square. Have you got any last words? Yes. I don't want to go. Well, succinct anyway. Bildor was amazed to find she was trying to hold his hand. Above him, the hands of midnight came together. There was a whirring from the clock. The door opened. The automata marched out. They clicked to a halt on either side of the hour bell, bowed to one another, and raised their hammers. Dong! And then there was the sound of a horse trotting. Miss Flitworth found the edge of her vision filling with purple and blue blotches, like the flashes of afterimage with no image to come after. If she jerked her head quickly and peered out of the tail of her eye, she could see small grey-clad shapes hovering around the walls. The revenuers, she thought. They've come to make sure it all happens. Bill, she said. He closed his palm over the gold timer. Now it starts. The hoofbeats grew louder and echoed off the buildings behind them. Remember, you are in no danger. Bildor stepped back into the gloom. Then he reappeared momentarily. Probably, he added, and retreated into the darkness. Miss Flitworth sat down on the steps of the clock, cradling the body of the girl across her knees. Bill, she ventured. A mounted figure rode into the square. It was, indeed, on a skeletal horse. Blue flame crackled over the creature's bones as it trotted forward. Miss Flitworth found herself wondering whether it was a real skeleton, animated in some way, something that had once been the inside of a horse, or a skeletal creature in its own right. It was a ridiculous chain of thought to follow, but it was better than dwelling on the ghastly reality that was approaching. Did it get rubbed down, or just given a good polish? Its rider dismounted. It was much taller than Bill Dorr had been, but the darkness of its robe hid any details. It held something that wasn't exactly a scythe, but which might have had a scythe in its ancestry, in the same way that even the most cunningly fashioned surgical implement has a stick somewhere in its past. It was a long way from any implement that ever touched a straw. The figure stalked towards Miss Flitworth, scythe over its shoulder, and stopped. Where is he? Don't know who you're talking about, said Miss Flitworth, and if I was you, young man, I'd feed my horse. The figure appeared to have trouble digesting this information, but finally it seemed to reach a conclusion. It unshipped the scythe and looked down at the child. I will find him, it said. But first... It stiffened. A voice behind it said, Drop the scythe and turn around slowly. Something within the city... Windle thought. Cities grow up full of people, but they're also full of commerce and shops and religions, and... This is stupid, he told himself. They're just things. They're not alive. Maybe life is something you acquire. Parasites and predators, but not like that sort affecting animals and vegetables. They were some kind of big, slower, metaphorical life form living off cities. But they incubate in the cities, like those... What are they? Those icky Newman wasp things. He could remember now, just as he could remember everything reading as a student about creatures that laid their eggs inside other creatures. For months after, he'd refused omelettes and caviar, just in case. And the eggs would look like the city in a way, so that citizens could carry them home. Like cuckoo eggs. I wonder how many cities died in the past, ringed by parasites like a coral reef surrounded by starfish. They'd just become empty. They'd lose whatever spirit they had. He stood up. Where's everyone gone, librarian? Ooh, ooh. 
just like them. I'd have done that, rush off without thinking. May the gods bless them and help them, if they can find the time from their eternal family squabbles. And then he thought, well, what now? I've thought, and what am I going to do? Rush off, of course, but slowly. The centre of the heap of trolleys was no longer visible. Something was going on. A pale blue glow hung over the huge pyramid of twisted metal, and there were occasional flashes of lightning deep within the pile. Trolleys slammed into it like asteroids accreting around the core of a new planet, but a few arrivals did something else. They headed for tunnels that had opened within the structure and disappeared into the glittering core. Then there was a movement at the tip of the mountain, and something thrust its way up through the broken metal. It was a glistening spike, supporting a globe about two metres across. It did nothing very much for a minute or two, and then, as the breeze dried it out, it split and crumbled. White objects cascaded out, were caught by the wind, and fountained over Ankh-Morpork and the watching crowds. One of them zigzagged gently down across the rooftops, and landed at the feet of Windle Poons as he lurched outside the library. It was still damp, and there was writing on it. At least, an attempt at writing. It looked like the strange organic inscription of the snowflake balls. Words created by something that was not at all at home with words. Sail, 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 starts to morrow. Windle reached the university gateway. People were streaming past. Windle knew his fellow citizens. They'd go to look at anything. They were suckers for anything written down with more than one exclamation mark after it. He felt someone looking at him and turned. A trolley was watching from an alleyway. It backed up and whizzed away. "'What's happening, Mr Poons?' said Lord Miller. There was something unreal about the expression of the passers-by. They were an expression of unbudgeable anticipation. You didn't have to be a wizard to know that something was wrong, and Windle's senses were whining like a dynamo. Lupine leapt at a drifting sheet of paper and brought it to him. Amazing reductions. Windle shook his head sadly. Five exclamation marks, the sure sign of an insane mind. And then he heard the music. Lupine sat back on his haunches and howled. In the cellar under Mrs Cake's house, Schleppel, the bogeyman, paused halfway through his third rat and listened. Then he finished his meal and reached for his door. Count Arthur Winkings Notfarauto was working on the crypt. Personally, he could have lived or relived or unlived or whatever it was he was supposed to be doing without a crypt. But you had to have a crypt. Doreen had been very definite about the crypt. It gave the place tone, she said. You had to have a crypt and a vault, otherwise the rest of vampire society would look down their teeth at you. They never told you about that sort of thing when you started vampiring. They never told you to build your own crypt out of some cheap two-by-four from Chalky the Troll's wholesale building supplies. It wasn't something that happened to most vampires, Arthur reflected. Not your proper vampires. Your actual Count Jugular, for example. No, a toff like him would have someone for it. When the villagers came to burn the place down, you wouldn't catch the county's own self whipping down to the gate to drop the drawbridge. Oh, no, he'd just say... Igor, as it might be. Igor, just sort it out, chop, chop. <laughs> well, they'd had an advert in Mr Keeble's job shop for months now. Bed, three meals a day, and hump provided if necessary. Not so much as an inquiry, and people said there was all this unemployment around. It made you livid. He picked up another piece of wood and measured it, grimacing as he unfolded the ruler. Arthur's back ached from digging the moat. And that was another thing your posh vampire didn't have to worry about. The moat came with the job style of thing. And it went all the way round because other vampires didn't have the street out in front of them. And old Mrs. Pivey complaining on one side and a family of trolls Doreen wasn't speaking to on the other. And therefore they didn't end up with a moat that just went across the backyard. Arthur kept falling in it. And then there was the biting the necks of young women. Or rather there wasn't. Arthur was always prepared to see the other person's point of view, but he felt certain that young women came into the vampiring somewhere, whatever Doreen said. In diaphanous peignoirs. Arthur wasn't quite certain what a diaphanous peignoir was, but he'd read about them and he definitely felt that he'd like to see one before he died. Or whatever. And other vampires didn't suddenly find their wives talking with V's instead of W's. The reason being, your natural vampire talked like that anyway. 
Arthur sighed. It was no life or half-life or afterlife or whatever it was, being a lower-middle-class wholesale fruit and vegetable merchant with an upper-class condition. And then the music filtered in through the hole in the wall that he'd knocked out to put in the barred window. Ow, he said, and clutched at his jaw. Doreen? Reg Shoe thumped his portable podium. And let me say, we shall not lie back and let the grass grow over our heads, he bellowed. So what is your seven-point plan for equal opportunities with the living? I hear you cry. The wind blew the dried grasses in the cemetery. The only creature apparently paying any attention to Reg was a solitary raven. Reg Shoe shrugged and lowered his voice. You might at least make some effort, he said to the next world at large. Here's me wearing my fingers to the bone, he flexed his hands to demonstrate. And do I hear a word of thanks? He paused, just in case. The raven, which was one of the extra-large fat ones that infested the rooftops of the university, put its head on one side and gave Reg Shoe a thoughtful look. You know, said Reg, sometimes I just feel like giving up. The raven cleared its throat. Reg Shoe spun around. You say one word, he said, just one bloody word. And then he heard the music. End of CD 6